Section 83 of Mysteries of London, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Patterson. Mysteries of London, Volume 4, by George W. M. Reynolds. The Confections of a Lunatic, Part 1. My blood has been boiling like a lava stream. It appears to me as if I can now freely respire the fresh air, having only breathed by gasps. What agony, then, has it been that has thus convulsed my soul? Of what kind was the anguish which has left such strange and unnatural sensations behind? Have I just awakened from a reverie of burning thoughts and appalling visions, or was there any truth in the hideous things which seemed to have passed like frightful phantasmagoria through my brain? What means the suffocating sob that has struggled upward, and as it were spontaneously from my breast? Oh God, it appears to me now as if the wildest, most maniacal ideas have crowded into volumes, but become compressed into instants. Do I rave? Am I really here, in a room elegantly furnished, and seated at this table, writing? Is the bright sunlight streaming in at the open casement? And does the breeze penetrate into the chamber, fanning my feverish cheek and throbbing brow, and wafting to me the delicious perfume of flowers? Is all this true, or a dream? Am I still a denizen of the earth, that earth of which I seem for some time to have lost all forgetfulness, dwelling during the interval in a chaos peopled with horrible images, ghastly spectres, frightful beings of nondescript shape? Oh, I remember... I find this paper, this pen, and this ink in that large and massive wardrobe so exquisitely carved, and something tells me that there are persons watching my movements, spying my actions, and who will be angry with me, perhaps ill-treat me, if they behold me writing down my ideas. Oh, I am afraid. I am afraid. My God, where am I? There is a hurry in my brain. My blood again begins to boil. My hand trembles as I write, but wherefore do I write at all? I know not, and yet it seems to do me good. If any persons, any of those men whom I remember to have seen just now, should endeavour to enter the room, I will hide my papers in yonder wardrobe. Or else, under the bed, or between the mattress? No, in that wardrobe. It is the safest place, I feel confident." But why should I not go forth and walk in the garden, which I can see from the window, or else penetrate into the fields at a great distance, and lie down and think? If the breeze coming into this room does me good, how much more refreshed should I feel were I to ramble about in the open country? Yes, I will go. What does this mean? I have tried the door, and it is locked. Who dares to treat me thus? Me, a gentleman of birth and fortune. I will not endure such conduct. I will appeal to my brother, the magistrate, for protection. He shall hang the wretches who have perpetrated this insolence. Oh God, what do I see? There are bars at the window. Great heavens, I shall go mad. Mad. Yes, that was the last word that I wrote yesterday. I suppose it must have been yesterday, when I so hastily concealed my papers on hearing someone approaching the door. I remember that full well. Yes, it was an elderly man, with a mild and benevolent countenance, dressed in black, with linen beautifully white, and with a massive chain and seals. 
I looked at him well, but I knew him not. I do not think that I ever saw him before. He sat down by my side, felt my pulse, and asked me several questions. Ah, a thought flashes to my mind. That good old gentleman is a doctor. And now, yes, I think I can recall it all. I abused him. I insulted him very grossly. And then some men entered and compelled me to go to bed. They undressed me by force. I struggled against them, but it was useless. Oh, what does it all mean? Why those men to coerce me? Why that doctor to attend upon me? And why those bars at the window? Gracious God, it cannot be. No, no, the horrible thought. Yes, it must be so. I am really mad. Again, I sit down calmly and tranquilly to write. I have weighed well my condition, have asked myself a thousand questions, have read what I have written above, have striven to recollect all the past, have carefully examined the present, and have dared to think of the future. By all this, and by the bars at the window, I know that I am mad. Yes, but I can write the word now without growing excited, and I must practice writing it again, so that I may, by degrees, gather to my aid such an amount of self-possession as to be able to trace on this paper all that has occurred to me. Then shall I possess a positive memorial, a substantial key to the past, and should I again forget, in an interval of delirium, all that has occurred, I can speedily recommit the mournful history to my memory during a lucid interval like the present. Mad. 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 There. Now I can write the word without the least excitement, and this is a triumph already achieved. By gaining a complete and accurate knowledge of my real position, I shall know how to act. I am aware that I am in a lunatic asylum. I am also aware that I have passed through intervals of fearful delirium, but I must compose myself as much as possible. I cannot remain in this horrible place, and if I cannot become really sane again, I may at all events pretend to be so, and then they will let me out. But in order to regain my intellects or appear to recover my reason, I must remember all that has occurred to me, so as to be enabled to converse calmly and sensibly on the subject. Stay, I will think, I will reflect profoundly for the rest of the day, and tomorrow I will resume my pen. God forbid that the doctor or his men, or that prying old housekeeper, should look into the wardrobe. I would not lose my manuscript for worlds. June 13th, 1846 I have learnt the day of the month. The doctor has been with me for an hour, and he readily complied with my request to be furnished with an almanac. He told me that this is the 13th of June, and henceforth I hope I shall be enabled to keep the dates accurately. When I was at school, but this is many years ago, I used to make an almanac to calculate how long it was to the holidays, and every evening I scratched out the day that had just passed. Oh, happy, happy age of boyhood, wilt thou never come back? Hast thou gone forever? Now must I erase each day as it passes, and hope that the period of my release is near at hand. That shall be the holiday of my manhood, to which I must look forward with anxious, fervid, burning hope. But to my narrative. 
£100,000 became mine on the day that I attained my majority. That was nine years ago. I was my own master, my parents had long been dead, and my guardians attempted not even to advise me, much less control me. They were not relations, mere men of business to whom my fortune had been entrusted, with a view to its accumulation. The moment I became possessed of that wealth, I plunged headlong into the vortex of pleasure. Heavens, in what dissipation did I indulge? Who could drink deeper than I, and walk home steadily afterwards? Who was more sought after and caressed among the fair sex? Who was a more constant attendant at racecourses, gaming houses, and the haunts of fashionable vice and aristocratic debauchery? Fool that I was. I imagined that to spend money profusely was to enjoy life largely. I had three mistresses at the same time. Three women, having each a separate establishment, maintained at my cost. What were the consequences? At five and twenty, my constitution was nearly ruined, and eighty thousand pounds of my fortune had been expended. The very principles of my existence seemed to be undermined. Disease was gnawing at my vitals. An unbroken career of the wildest dissipation was hurrying me, with racehorse speed, to the tomb. Suddenly I awoke, as from a dream. But it was not because remorse had touched me, nor because good counsels were proffered me, nor because some latent feelings of virtue sprang into existence. Neither was it because my fortune was nearly wasted and my health rapidly failing. No, but it was because I, at that epoch, saw my Editha for the first time. Oh, how can I retain my calmness now, when I think of her as I then beheld her? Beheld her in all the glory of her matchless beauty, radiant with that loveliness that seemed to surround her with the halo that only angels have. Yes, I was then twenty-five, and Editha Greville was nineteen, that delightful age when the female figure swells into womanly loveliness, round, full, and exquisitely modelled. We loved almost at first sight, and though several weeks passed ere I ventured to declare my passion, I could read in Editha's eyes that I was far from being displeasing to her. She was an only child, her father was dead. Her mother, though a woman of considerable wealth, mixed little in society, and the wildness of my conduct was not therefore fully known to Mrs. Greville. At the same time, she had heard that I was extravagant and imprudent, but when I implored her to bestow upon me the hand of her daughter, she yielded her assent, expressing a hope that I had sown all my wild oats by that time, and should grow steady in a matrimonial state. Thus was it that I became the recognised suitor of Editha, and when some of Mrs. Greville's friends, who knew me well, represented to her that I was notoriously a half-ruined rake, the old lady had too much confidence in all the promises of reformation which I had made to revoke the consent she had given to our union. Besides, she saw that Editha was deeply attached to me, and that the beauteous girl's happiness depended on the smooth progress of love's course. But alas, painful thoughts forced themselves upon my mind. I felt that my constitution was ruined, and I believed myself to be in a consumption. Faithful to the solemn pledges which I had made to Mrs. Greville, I established a complete change in my habits, and instead of drinking wine to excess, I forswore all alcoholic liquor whatsoever. Likewise, instead of passing my nights in dissipation, I returned home at an early hour and sought my couch. 
but the suddenness of this alteration in my habits produced effects which I can only compare to the terrible reaction that a man experiences when waking in the morning after a night of deep debauch. A dead weight fell upon my spirits. I became so low and depressed that horrible thoughts of suicide were constantly floating in my brain. My nervousness was extreme and intensely painful. An unusually loud knock or ring at the front door would make me start as if I had committed a crime and was expecting the officers of justice to come and arrest me. I was constantly conjuring up the most shocking visions respecting the future, and when immersed in these reveries, I verily believed that I was contemplating realities. Such was the morbid state of my mind. It was therefore natural that I should begin to reflect upon the step which I had taken with regard to Editha. I had sought and won the affections of a beautiful creature, who is possessed of a generous heart, an amiable disposition, and a loving soul, and I was shocked to think that such a being, in all the vigorous health of youthfulness, should be led to the altar by one whose constitution was shattered, whose vital energies were almost ruined, and who seemed to be hovering on the very verge of the tomb. Oh, how maddening were these thoughts! I looked upon myself as a villain, a deceiver, and often, often was I on the point of throwing myself at Mrs. Greville's feet and exclaiming, Pardon me, madam, for having dared to ask the hand of your daughter in marriage. I am but a phantom, a shadow. The finger of death is upon me, and if Editha should accompany me to the altar, it is probable that in less than a year she will have to follow me to the tomb." But when I thought of Editha's matchless beauty and pondered upon the immensity of the love that I experienced for her, I could not command the courage necessary to enable me to resign the hope of possessing such a treasure. Besides, in her society I could smile and be gay. Her musical voice was more ravishing to my ears than the inspired strains of an improvisatrice. Her breath was more fragrant than the perfume of flowers, her lips more delicious than the honeydew upon the blossoms. Oh, no, no, I could not resign my Editha. But no day had been as yet fixed for our marriage, and six weeks had already elapsed since I had proposed and was accepted. Shall I confess the truth? I dared not ask her mother to name the day. I shrank from the idea, as if I were meditating a murder, had marked out my victim, but dreaded to settle in my own mind the night and the hour when the assassin blow should be struck. I was lying in bed one morning, reflecting on all these things, for the dark fit of despondency was upon me, when my valet entered the room with the morning's newspapers. I listlessly unfolded one of the journals, when my eyes suddenly caught sight of an advertisement, headed thus. Manhood, the reasons of its early decline, with plain hints for its complete resuscitation. The book was announced to be an emanation from the pen of T. L. Surtees & Co., consulting surgeons, residing in one of the streets leading out of Soho Square, and it appeared by certain quotations of notices from the leading newspapers that the book was a medical treatise of great utility, merit and importance. Hope now dawned in upon my soul. Perhaps my constitution was not irretrievably damaged. Perchance I might not be in a consumption after all. Such were my thoughts after perusing that advertisement over and over again, and I resolved to lose no time in calling upon the able practitioners who undertook the resuscitation of any constitution, no matter how hopeless the case might seem. 
Accordingly, having hastily dressed myself, I repaired in a street cab to the address indicated on the advertisement. The house was one of imposing appearance, and the words Surtees & Co. Consulting Surgeons were displayed in deep black letters on immense shining zinc plates. The fawn-coloured Venetian blinds were drawn down, and I said to myself as I alighted with a fluttering heart, doubtless these eminent practitioners have patients waiting in every room to consult them. Entering the passage, I found an inner door, with a bronze knocker and a ground-glass fanlight, on which were inscribed the same words as those that appeared on the polished zinc plates. I was immediately admitted by a footman, and conducted upstairs to a drawing-room, every feature of which is, at this moment, as fresh in my memory as if I were seated and writing there now. This apartment, at first sight, impressed me with an idea of luxurious splendour, but a closer examination into its appointments showed me that the most vulgar taste had presided over its fitting up. The paper was of crimson and gold, and to the walls were suspended several paintings set in magnificent frames, which only rendered the daubs the more miserably ludicrous. Two of them were covered with plate glass, as if they were very valuable, whereas they were as wretched as the others. Some unprincipled person, thought I, must have imposed upon these worthy doctors by recommending pictures to which I would not accord house room. But men of philosophic minds and who are devoted to professional studies are seldom good judges of works of art. Thus ruminating, I continued my examination of the apartment, and I was struck with surprise at the utter vulgarity and absence of taste which characterised the profusion of French porcelain ornaments scattered about. Here was a Chinese joss with a movable head, and there was a peddler mounted on a gigantic goat. At the corners of the fireplace were two paintings, evidently cut out of a picture, and representing little charity school girls. In the centre of the room stood a loo table, upon which a writing desk was placed, and this was surrounded by medical publications, bearing on their title pages the magical names of those gentlemen whom I was so anxiously waiting to see. I had the curiosity to open one of the works, but I was disgusted with the obscenity of the coloured plates which it contained. A moment's reflection, however, induced me to believe that there could be nothing indecent in the development of the divine art of surgery and I felt ashamed of myself for having even for an instant entertained such scruples. As a concluding observation respecting the drawing-room itself, I must remark that its entire appearance indicated the taste of a vulgar upstart, rather than the refined elegance of a polished mind. Having waited nearly three-quarters of an hour, a footman made his appearance, and, with many obsequious bows, conducted me downstairs into a dining-room most gaudily and extravagantly furnished. The same grovelling vulgarity of taste which I had noticed elsewhere was apparent in the crimson damask curtains with yellow fringes and tassels, the looking-glasses in ponderous frames, the showy daubs suspended to the walls, and the furniture arranged for the purpose of display. Folding doors admitted me into an inner apartment of equally vulgar appearance, and beyond was a little room, only a few feet square, and which the footman, as he ushered me in, denominated the surgery. I must confess that my heart beat violently as I traversed those two apartments leading to the sanctum where I expected to find myself in the presence of the eminent medical practitioners. 
I had pictured to myself a couple of old and venerable-looking gentlemen, with genius stamped upon their high, bald foreheads and their eyes expressing all the powers of vigorous intellects. I was therefore somewhat surprised when, on being introduced into the surgery, I beheld only one individual, who was the very reverse of the portraiture I had drawn by anticipation. His features were of the Jewish caste. His complexion was of that swarthy and greasy description peculiar to the lower order of the Hebrew race. His hair was black and very thick, and his whiskers met beneath his chin. His eyes were dark, and one of them was larger than the other. His bottle nose was rather on one side, and his countenance altogether was as ignoble, as vulgar, and as unintellectual as ever served as an index to a sordid, grovelling soul. His dress was of the flashy kind, which belongs partly to the upstart or parvenu, and partly to the swell mob's man. He wore a blue dress coat, a gaudy waistcoat, and large loose trousers hollowed at the instep so as to be shaped to the polished leathern boot. A profusion of jewellery decorated his person. A thick gold chain with a large key depended to his watch. His worked shirt was fastened with diamond and blue enamel studs, and his dirty hands were covered with costly rings, which appeared as ill-placed upon the clumsy, grimy fingers as pearls would be round the neck of a pig. Such was the individual in whose presence I found myself, and had I not been at the time in such a desperate state of mind that I was eager to clutch at a straw, I should at once have seen through the man and his system. But I reassured myself with the adage which teaches that we should never judge by outward appearances, and it flashed into my mind that many men remarkable for the brilliancy of their intellect were far from being prepossessing in either person, manners, or address. Moreover, I never had partaken in the shameful, unjust, and absurd prejudices which too many of my fellow countrymen entertain in respect to the Jews, and therefore the mere fact of this Mr. Surtees being a member of the Hebrew race produced on my mind no unfavourable impression with regard to him. "'Pray be seated,' said the medical gentleman, with a tone and manner which I, at the time, mistook for professional independence, but which I have since discovered to be the vulgar insolence of an ignorant, self-sufficient upstart.' I took a chair in compliance with the invitation given, and when he had seated himself at his desk, he extended his dirty but jewel-bedizened paw, saying, "'Will you oblige me with your card?' I did as requested, but not without a little hesitation, for I had hoped to avoid giving my name and address. "'Ah, I see,' said Mr. Surtees, in a musing tone, as he examined the card. "'Mr. MacDonald,' he continued, reading my name. "'By the way,' Are you any relation to the Marquis of Burlington? Cause his family name is the same as yourn. I replied that I was not a relative of the nobleman mentioned. Well, it don't signify, proceeded Mr. Surtees. The Marquis is a excellent friend of mine. He lays under a sight of obligations to me. He come to me in the first instance with a constitution so veered out and shattered that no medical carpenter in all Hengland could have mended it up except me. But the course of a few weeks I put him right as a trivet, and now he go through fire and water to serve me. It only cost him a couple of thousand pounds to get quite cured, and that was cheap, I know, Evans knows. But how comes you to call upon me this morning? 
varied in consequence of having perused von mine medical works. Ah, themselves well, them does. Or varied cause you see my advertisement in the newspapers. I was so completely bewildered by this outpouring of exorbitant English and vile grammar that for some moments I was utterly unable to answer the questions put to me. Was it possible that this coarse, ignorant, and self-sufficient vulgarian should be an eminent medical authority, the author of valuable publications, the celebrated surgeon whom the extracts from newspapers quoted in his advertisement spoke of so highly? I was astounded. But again did hope blind me to what the man really was. Again did I reassure myself by the reflection that Mr. Surtees might be an excellent surgeon, although he was a miserable grammarian and I accordingly recovered my self-possession sufficiently to inform him that I had called in consequence of reading his advertisement in the newspapers. The doctor seemed pleased at my answer, and immediately exclaimed, "'Well, sir, and what a blessing it is that people do read advertisements. Cosvi, they get at the knowledge of eminent medical-like practitioners, which has devoted their lives to the heart of healing in all sorts of diseases.' You see before you, sir, he continued in a pompous tone and with an arrogant air, a man what knows everything out of the human constitution, no one knows so well as myself what consumption really is. Then you have made consumption your particular study, sir, I observed, seeing that he paused in order to elicit some remark from me. Rather, was his laconic answer. The fact is, he continued, for med like men is over what consumption is, nor in what part of the frame it begins. Why, I once knowed a gentleman, sir, which had a rapid decline begin in the great toe of his left foot, and travel upwards till it spread itself over the entire system. The doctors had all give him up, and the undertaker was actually thinking of the good job he should soon have to put into his hand, when I was consulted. I made him take seventeen bottles of my beautiful balm of Zura, and he recovered in less than a fortnight. Weak, nervous, and attenuated as I was, this anecdote made a deep impression upon me. I forgot the bad grammar. I lost sight of the arrogance and self-sufficient vulgarity. I saw and heard only the man who solemnly assured me that he had redeemed a fellow creature from the jaws of death, when all other members of the faculty had given up on the case as hopeless. Mr. Surtees doubtless perceived that he had worked me up to the pitch suitable to his purposes, and he accordingly said, Well, my good sir, will you be so good as to explain what it is you've come to consult me for? I then frankly and candidly confessed that I had expended four-fifths of a large fortune in a career of unbroken dissipation, that my constitution was grievously impaired, if not absolutely ruined, that since I had given up drinking and all other sources of unnatural excitement, I was subject to such frequent fits of despondency that the idea of suicide was almost constantly in my imagination that I loved and was beloved by a beautiful girl who was possessed of property, but that I felt afraid to contract the matrimonial engagement, lest I should leave her an unprotected widow in the course of a short time. Mr. Surtees listened with great attention, and when I had concluded, he appeared to reflect profoundly. At length he said, Well, let's feel your pulse. I extended my hand towards him, and he applied his thumb to a part of my wrist, where I did not suppose that a pulse lay, 
but I concluded at the time that his great proficiency in medicine had led him to discover a new pulse, and that the best mode to take it was with the thumb. Very weak pulse indeed, he said, shaking his head with as much solemnity as the Chinese joss up in his drawing room might have been expected to display. But don't go for to give way to despair, my dear sir. The case is a bad un, I admit, a very, very bad un, and I can't say as how I ever knowed a worser. Pray, who's the young lady which you intends to marry? I've a motive in axing. I thought that as the learned gentleman was already acquainted with my name and address, there could be no harm in answering this new question, the more especially as even if I refused to reply, he could easily institute those inquiries that would lead to a knowledge of the fact. I accordingly satisfied him on that head. Ah, I don't know her, he observed carelessly. Then, after a few moments' reflection, he said, Well, I undertake to cure you, but the business will be a expensive one. You must write me a cheque for a hundred guineas, my consultation fee, and then I'll tell you what you must do next. Reassured by the promises he thus held out, I unhesitatingly gave him a draft for the amount demanded. He then opened a drawer and drew forth a small case containing six bottles. This here is the rail elixir of life, he said, in a tone of solemn mystery. It invigorates the constitution in no time, and puts a regular stopper on the advance of consumption. The Grand Turk has a case sent every week to him through his ambassador, and all the crowned heads of Europe is patients of mine, I may say. Take a bottle of this beautiful balm daily, and when it's all gone, come back again to me. The price of them, six, is fifteen guineas, and you can write me out another cheque advance. I hastened to comply with this demand, and Mr. Surtees bowed me out of the surgery. But here I must leave off writing, for I am wearied. My brain begins to grow confused, and my memory fails me. Oh, what a fool, what an idiot I was, not to have seen through the man and his quackery on the occasion of that visit, the particulars of which I have detailed at such length. End of section 83 Recording by Mary Patterson.